Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. I'm joined here in our New York studio, as I am every week, by Shannon Bond, co-host. Shannon, how are you? I'm great, Cardiff. How are you? I'm good, but I'm a little bit worried about something. Not all of our listeners are American, okay? So I wonder if our listeners abroad can get as excited about the fact that this Sunday is the Super Bowl as we are. It depends on how many uh, Broncos and Panthers fans there are out there in our listening audience. I'm guessing uh, I'm guessing there are some here in the U.S., okay? But we've got some good news for our listeners abroad, which is that the quality of media gets a lot better around this time of year. It's true. So for all of the fretting in ad land, right, about ad blocking, cord cutting, Netflix, like all the ways everyone seems to be rejecting advertising, the one thing that marketers keep saying is, but think about the Super Bowl. People love the Super Bowl. Like So many people watch the Super Bowl just for the ads. It's, it's true. It's totally true. And it's, very, it's become this sort of media circus around it. Many, many of the ads, we should say, so it's the most valuable real estate essentially in TV advertising. Uh, this year, CBS is charging. Yeah, it's really expensive. CBS is charging uh, five million dollars for a thirty-second ad. Um, you know, these are these are sizable portions of some of these marketing budgets. It's not just like the big, big companies you think of, like Budweiser and you know Unilever who advertise. It's also there's always a couple like newcomers, a couple small companies who kind of go all in on the Super Bowl, and it becomes bigger and bigger every year. And earlier, it starts earlier and earlier every year. So everyone's putting their ads out now and doing these teaser campaigns. And it's like the one part of the traditional media where things are getting more expensive rather than cheaper, right? Because like advertising for pretty much every other part of the media is falling apart, but not for the big football game every year. Well, and anything, essentially anything related to live events, right? So, so the rights to air sports, those get more and more expensive every year. Broadcast rights keep going up. Advertising rates, you know, are still pretty strong for other, other, not quite as big as Super Bowl, but other live events uh, like the Oscars, the Grammys, you know, we've seen with political advertising, uh, with the debates, you know, Fox did really well in August in their first debate, um, partially because of the Trump effect. But yeah, no, you, you definitely see this huge dichotomy happening in media where the few places that can draw those kind of mass audiences, which are supposed to be the big strength of TV, can, 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 you, can continue to command a really strong premium. Um, but for everyone else, it's kind of dropping off at a rapid clip. Speaking of the Trump effect, we got a bit of Trump on today's show. We do. So let's get right to it. On the show today, first up, a discussion of the Chinese economy and the wrenching rebalancing process that it's going through. We talked to Michael Pettis, who's here from Peking University, visiting us in our New York studios. And my colleague from Alphaville, Matt Klein, will join us as well. And then afterwards, Shannon and I talked to Matt Garahan, the FT's global media editor, about the entire landscape of conservative media in the U.S. and what a big impact it has on U.S. politics 
then finally, Amelia Mahasek is back to join us for the follow-up segment. And of course, stick around for our long-form recommendations. Lots of fun stuff today. Stick around. And in our first segment, we're going to be talking about the Chinese economy. Joining me for this segment, Matt Klein, my colleague on Alphaville. Matt, last week you were here talking to us about Japan and demographics. This week it's China. I'm actually convinced you don't really care about the U.S. economy anymore. You know, that's harsh, man. You should have seen my last couple of posts, but I'll, I'll let that slide. <laughs> okay. And our special guest today is Michael Pettis, professor at Peking University. He blogs at mpettis.com. Michael, welcome to New York. Thanks very much. Okay, so you just published a 20,000-word blog post, a kind of magnum opus of like your views on China, right? Here's where I want to start. A lot of people look at the slowdown in the Chinese economy in the past year or so as part of the rebalancing process, shifting away from investments and exports and towards consumption. You don't necessarily disagree with that, but in your writing, you tend to emphasize the importance of debt and debt sustainability and specifically the problem that debt continues to accelerate in, uh, in China uh, at a rate that's exceeding China's ability to service it. So why don't you walk us through your argument, starting with the sources of rising debt in China, where it comes from, who's owed, and who owes, uh, and then tell us why it's such a big problem. Well, ultimately, it's very hard to disentangle any of the debt from uh, from the banking system and from the government. So you can pretty much assume that much, if not most, of the debt is government debt ultimately. It's, uh, it's owed by the government because if it's owed through the banking system, they're not going to let the banking system collapse. The reason th- There are two reasons why I worry a great deal about the debt. Part of it is historical and part of it is conceptual. And in my next book, I plan to explore the conceptual part as much as possible. I argue that once you have an excess amount of debt, which I define as straight financial distress uh, definition, when the uh, the debt levels are high enough that there is uncertainty about how debt servicing costs will be allocated, then you have too much debt. And when you have too much debt, because of that uncertainty, all the stakeholders in the economy change their behaviors in ways that adversely affect the economy. And I want to explain this much more in my book. Uh, but the basic argument, which a lot of economists don't understand, but in finance theory is pretty well understood, is that when you have too much de- debt, that itself acts as a constraint on growth. But the uh, the historical part is something that m- more economists should be asking, and that is when you look at the dozens and dozens of countries that have had too much debt, as I define it, in the in the last couple of hundred years – I can't find a single one that was able to reform the economy, improve productivity, and grow its way out of debt without implicitly or explicitly debt forgiveness. And the explicit debt forgiveness, of course, is you uh, you default and you uh, get formal debt forgiveness. The implicit debt forgiveness is that you monetize it or you inflate it away, which means basically you force the household sector to pay for it. But I haven't found any exception. And that should at least puzzle us because... If it's the debt that prevents your ability to grow out of the debt, then it means that you cannot grow out of the debt and you must address the debt problem and you must explicitly allocate those debt servicing costs. Okay. And in the context of China, 
the government has in the past few years made pledges to reform its supply side policies, right? right? But you distinguish between two kinds of supply side policies, those that are meant to raise productivity and efficiency, and those that do exactly what you just said, which is address the debt directly. So tell us a little bit about those reforms sure. and what you think is the likely outcome. This is going to be pretty controversial because basically I'm going to argue or I am arguing that reforms aimed at improving productivity have never worked and they can't work. If you want to resolve this problem, you have to do two things. First of all, in order to slow the growth in debt, you've got to bring investment down because investment is being misallocated more than ever. If you bring investment down, unemployment goes up, which nobody wants. So if you don't want unemployment to go up, you need another source of demand. And there are three sources of demand, investment, consumption, and net foreign investment and consumption. Exports. exports, net exports. Net exports aren't going to work. China's too big. Uh, the world is in bad shape. So I think we can pretty much write that off. Investments. For a while, people were saying, well, if we sufficiently reform the financial sector, then the financial sector will stop misallocating capital. There are real uses of uh, capital in China, and it will begin to allocate capital correctly. That it will find better projects yeah, to invest th in. That there are good projects, and what we need to do is reform the financial sector so that it stops doing what it does and moves towards these new, uh, good projects. And I say, yeah, of course. If we do that, then we don't have a problem. But that's like saying, if I win the lottery ticket, I don't have to work anymore. It's true. But it's not very likely. And it's more than not very likely. I can't find a single case in history in which that kind of reform happened quickly enough. The only possible exception might be Chile at the end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s. But remember, they had a political collapse, an economic collapse, and a banking sector collapse uh, before they did that. So I think that's very unlikely. I, don't, I think we can write off investment. That's not going to replace in bad investment as a source of demand. So we're left with consumption. That's the only way to do so. But why is consumption so low in China? I think by now we all know it's because household income is such a low share of GDP. So you've got to get household income up. And the only way you can really get household income up quickly is through explicit or implicit transfers from the, uh, from the government sector. So one way or the other, we have to do those transfers. The same thing applies to debt. The only way really to pay down debt, because it's all ultimately government debt, is to liquidate government assets and use that to pay down the debt. So we have the same answer to both problems, which, by the way, is not a coincidence. It's always how it happens. And the answer is to transfer government assets, to pay down debt, and to increase household wealth. But that's a political problem, and that's why it's so difficult to do. That's the vested interest problem. Sure. How would you do that? What's the best way to avoid all those other problems you just mentioned while also redistributing wealth towards the household sector? Well, any economist can tell you how. It's, it's not very hard. Uh, you can privatize state-owned enterprises, use the money to fund a stronger social safety network or to give directly to the uh, residents, uh, to citizens. You can eliminate the HUCO system, which immediately makes migrant workers wealthy, wealthier, but now it makes the municipalities poorer, so they would have to fund that by selling off assets. You know, there are many, many ways you can do it. In March of last year, Shandong province transferred state-owned enterprises, shares and SOEs, to the Shandong Pension Fund. That's not very efficient because I don't think the Shandong Pension Fund is terribly credible, but you can do that. There are a million ways to do it. But all of them involve opposition from those who control those assets. From the vested interests. From the sure. vested interests, uh, yeah. One last question before I, I let Matt get in here. 
because I want to tie what you're saying to the recent move in the currency, right? A lot of people thought that when China allowed the currency to depreciate recently, that part of the motivation was to reinvigorate its exports in order to cushion the slowdown in growth. Your explanation is a little bit different. It has to do with liquidity. Can you take us through that? Well, you know, in this trip, I kept getting asked over and over again, what is their strategy and why aren't they articulating it more clearly? And I think it's a mistake to think that there is a strategy. It's really not clear what to do with the currency because I think one of the goals is to stop the outflows. So how do you stop the outflows? If you don't let the currency depreciate and you try to rebuild credibility, that's very expensive. That causes a significant reduction in reserves and the reduction in reserves undermines credibility. So it's not clear that that's going to work. If you let the currency depreciate 5 or 6% a year, you're basically telling people what the cost of leaving their money in the country is. So it's hard to imagine that'll stop outflows. Maybe you can do a maxi deval and a peg, but I don't think that's uh, credible any longer. Or maybe you can stop intervening altogether, but I don't think the currency goes down 10 or 15%. I think it overshoots. So it's not really clear that there is a strategy. If you really want to stop the outflows, you've got to have a big positive shock to confidence. And I suspect since everybody is so afraid of debt, I suspect the only positive shock to confidence would be a really aggressive program to address the debt. For me, the way I see it, depreciating the currency doesn't really increase growth because it, we don't think unemployment is very high. Wage growth still seems reasonably strong. So if you depreciate the currency, you strengthen the tradable goods sector, but you probably weaken the services sector, the uh, capital intensive sector, by causing wages to be bid up. I would argue that depreciating the currency is a form of wealth transfer, and it's probably part of the political horse trading domestically, uh, which makes it really hard to predict. So actually, just following up on this, I'm, over the past, I guess, you know, 15, 20 years, private capital inflows uh, into China were very positive. And the reversal has been extremely recent and is very vicious and violent. I'm curious if you could give some sense of you know, what changed and why suddenly the, the net flow reversed the extent that it did. Yeah, I kept hearing people uh, uh, ask me, isn't this just normal diversification? If you're rich, you've got to own assets in other countries. And if it hadn't been, as you described, so sudden, um, because really until 2014, there was a surplus on the capital account as well as a surplus on the current account. And then in 2014, we suddenly got a huge deficit on the capital account, which more or less matched the current account. And then last year, the uh, deficit on the capital account was significantly greater, as you know. That doesn't strike me as diversification. That strikes me as something else. And as a someone who started his career trading the defaulted and restructured debt in Latin America in the 1980s, it strikes me as capital flight. And there's anecdotal evidence that suggests the same thing. We can't really prove it, but the anecdotal, anecdotal evidence seems pretty strong. Yes, I guess just following up, if you have any sense of why, you know, what might have prompted capital to, to leave in, in that way and in that time frame? Well, if people are, if people are worried about the, the financial sector, if people are worried about debt, if people are worried about the, uh, uh, the political consequences of the anti-corruption campaign, all of those things should drive capital outflows. So it doesn't seem to me very irrational. It seems to me pretty normal. I actually want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, because one of the, I think, constant themes in your work is that finance theory is able to capture something a little bit more fundamental than 
economists and their models uh, are often able to capture about the Chinese situation in particular, uh, especially when economists use their equilibrium models. Right. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? I think um, this there, this risks becoming a very long answer, but I think there's a difference between managing the asset side and managing the liability side. And when debt levels are low or when the balance sheet is not significantly distorted, most growth can be explained by the growth that comes out of the management of the asset side. But when debt levels are higher, when there are significant distortions, the, the, the liability side can actually cause growth to be higher than otherwise or lower than otherwise. And I think that that's not really included in much of the analyses that we've seen. You know, I would go so far as to say that any attempt to project Chinese growth rates that, do, that, that doesn't explicitly deal with the debt, uh, you might as well just throw away because it's gotten everything wrong about China so far. But more importantly, it's been wrong about every country with a lot of debt. They've never gotten that right. Debt is a significant constraint. And I think I have a reason to explain it. But even if my reason is wrong, it's, it, it has to be more than coincidence that every single country with a debt problem has had ultimately to get some kind of debt forgiveness before it could grow. I mean, following up on that, I mean, you also make a distinction, I think is directly related to this, about the about what we call economic activity or GDP and debt servicing capacity expansion or wealth creation. And I know you've written about this in the past, that in some countries, these things are roughly analogous, such as in the US and China, they're clearly not. I mean, could you give some more explanation of what these differences are and how we can measure them? Yeah, you know, I was I was reading um, Diana Coyle's book on GDP. I really recommend it. It's a quick read. You can read it on a single flight. And uh, it, it, you know, deals with a lot of these questions. But GDP measures economic activity. Uh, it doesn't measure wealth creation and it doesn't measure debt servicing capacity. We all know that. And what really matters, particularly when you're worried about debt, is not so much how much activity there is but rather how much debt servicing capacity you're creating. You know, we could get 5%, 6% growth in the U.S. if we raise Chicago to the ground and rebuild it. It doesn't make us any richer, but it does increase temporarily economic activity. That kind of stuff isn't helpful at all. So when we have this big debate about whether Chinese GDP growth is really 6% or 5% or 4%, I'm not terribly interested in that debate because that's a debate about economic activity, and I don't really care about that. What I care about is debt servicing capacity. How fast is that growing? And I don't have an answer. But I think most people agree that it's growing more slowly than uh, GDP. Matt solicited some questions from Twitter earlier. We're going to read to you a couple of those, and hopefully you can field them as well. Uh, In your view, does it help or harm both the world and China in particular if the Fed is trying to be more internationalist the way it sets policy? That's really tough. I... uh, I think that the Fed should no longer be the uh, global central banker. I don't think the U.S. economy is big enough that it continue uh, that it can continue doing that. Uh, so I think the Fed should be focusing primarily on the U.S. economy. But having said that, it seems to me that the biggest problem in the world now, something we've seen many times before, and that is that there's significant income inequality, and we know what the impact of income inequality is. It forces up the savings rate. But the savings rate can only go up if productive investment goes up. It can only go up sustainably if productive investment goes up. And productive investment isn't going up. So that means something else has to bring the savings rate down because ultimately they must balance. And there's two ways you can bring the savings rate down. Uh, One way is what we had before 2008, which is that soaring real estate and, and stock markets 
make the middle class feel rich. And so they go out on a consumption binge, a debt fuel consumption binge. That's one way. But once you reach the limit, then you can't do that. So the only other way, and Keynes told us this in the 1930s, is unemployment goes up. So to me, that's the problem we're, we're stuck with. We have a significant income inequality problem. Now, in the middle of the 19th century, we also did. Uh, there was a great deal of uh, income inequality in, in England and very high savings rate. But there was a place for all of these savings to go productively, and that was the United States. It needed foreign savings, and it had plenty of room for productive investment. And I don't see what the equivalent is today. There, there are countries that need uh, investment and have insufficient savings, but they're not credible, so they won't get the money. Maybe India will move into that position, but we'll see. There's plenty of necessary productive investment in places like the United States. Clearly, I took the train to uh, Washington on uh, on Monday, and you know it's it's almost easier to go from Beijing to Shanghai by train than from Be from New York to Washington, which is absurd. And so we have plenty of room for that, but for political reasons, we're not doing it. So I don't really see how, I don't see whether loose monetary policy or tight monetary policy, I don't see how it can possibly help. One more. What are the top five Chinese bands that you recommend uh, for our <laughs> listeners? Are you kidding? It's like asking a mom what, who's her favorite son. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's limit it to, to like top two or three then, if you don't mind. No, that's even worse. Um, <laughs> our, our, our most successful band is clearly Carset Cards. They're the ones that have gotten the most uh, critical acclaim. They've played uh, around the world and, um, you know, people like Sonic Youth love them or ex-Sonic Youth. And then Chui Wan uh, is, is a young band that's really blowing everybody away. So I love those two bands. But we got tons. All right. Final question. A lot of this discussion has essentially been about what might happen in China for the next five years or maybe the next decade or so. I saw a casual point made by an economist not long ago about what would happen after that, right? And he said that essentially, you know, the next decade might be difficult, right? As this rebalance happens, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it's probably not going to be pretty. But that in the long term, China has at least throughout the last couple of decades made fairly substantial investments in human capital. And so when it emerges from this process, it should have a fairly well-educated workforce and that that at least is a source of longer-term optimism. I guess I wanted to ask if you agree and to talk about that. Um, sure. Um, the real key is how they manage the rebalancing process because historically, some countries have gone through the very, very difficult adjustments quite quickly and then they start growing very quickly again. Other countries have not, and the classic case is probably Japan. You know, Japan, I think, used to be 17% of the world. And today, I think it's 6 or 7% of the world, which I have trouble. I couldn't find any country that didn't do that or that did that in times of peace. During times of war, you can see that. But I think Japan's been pretty exceptional there. And that's what we don't want for China. I would argue that the way they manage the adjustment process is going to determine that because the adjustment could be a 10, 20-year uh, process, in which case a highly educated workforce today might not matter so much. So to me, that's really the key. And historically, that's always been the key. The countries that adjust quickly and successfully can continue growing, and the countries that don't never catch up. Michael Pettis, professor at Peking University, blogs at mpettis.com. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. But before you go, Michael, uh, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? One of the great things about crises historically is that an awful lot of good, good books come out after a crisis. But I was really blown away by Adam Tooze's book on, uh, on the First World War. I'm trying to remember the title of it. 
The Deluge. It's an absolutely brilliant book. It ties together not just the U.S. and Europe, which is they, they sort of star in, uh, in almost every history of the First World War, but also Asia and Latin America. And it lays a wonderful foundation for understanding the Second World War and the post-war period. And I was really, really impressed by it. For all of you people who have complained and whined and moaned about the media over the years and how unfair they are to Republicans and how unfair that makes the whole process, and what are we going to do? You need to be studying Donald Trump. Care whether you think what he says is outrageous or wrong or whatever. That's the wrong way to look at this right now. We still have people streaming across our border. Oh, that's worked out well. Oh, we still have a half a million people here on expired visas just in 2015. But don't worry, we have a Homeland Security Department that both the B- Bush started. Bush Bush thought this was a great idea to get everything together in one big department. And of course, Hillary Clinton and the Clinton supported it. So on big issues... Those are just some of the voices you'll hear on U.S. conservative talk radio these days, uh, especially as we're heading into a very contentious presidential election. We are joined now by Matt Garahan, the global media editor for the Financial Times. Hello. Hi, Matt. Hi. And you did a big piece uh, this weekend looking at the, the the race as it's playing out, the presidential race as it's playing out in the conservative media sphere. Yeah. Um, for me, maybe start off, tell us a little bit about the influence of conservative media in U.S. politics. It's, well, it's, it's very different. And I don't know how many of our listeners from around the world are familiar with the U.S. media landscape, but the, you know, we have cable news channels like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. Fox News in particular is a leans very heavily conservative, even though if you talk to them, they would deny vehemently that they are a conservative network. And How would they refer to themselves out of curiosity? They, they, they take great umbrage at, at that term and say they're a straight news network that just happens to redress the balance uh, that exists in media uh, by having conservative voices. So uh, Roger Rails, the chairman of Fox News, would say that the mainstream media, the mainstream media being the New York Times, you know, CBS News, NBC, Washington Post, all of those other outlets, lean heavily liberal, and that all they're doing with pundits like Sean Hannity, uh, Bill O'Reilly, and others is frame the news in a different way. Like they're re-anchoring things. Everybody else yeah. is too left-wing. Fox is fair, but because everybody else is too left-wing, yeah. Fox News comes across as too conservative. But actually their argument is that they are right down the middle. Yes, and he he would point to – there was a book that actually that he authorized, I think by Zeb uh, Chaffetz, came out last year, which lays this out pretty well. He's, you know, uh, Ailes says, you look at any other news magazine show, news panel discussion – there's usually two or three liberals on the panel and one conservative. And he, he thinks that's been in place for decades. And this is really a Fox is a counterweight to that kind of uh, bias. So to take a step back, the Fox in, in the in the sort of conservative media landscape, Fox does Fox News reigns supreme, but as influential and as as vocal really are uh, talk radio. And in the heartland of America, um, talk radio AM stations are hugely popular, listened to by you know most people, and presenters like 
Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, who doubles Fox News and, and has a his own radio show, and Laura Ingraham and others, uh, have huge followings of, of conservative-leaning people. If there's a... There's at least one way in which those two things differ, cable news and conservative talk radio though, right? Mm. On cable news, it's true that I think most of us, despite what they say, would consider Fox News to be a conservative news channel. But you've got liberal news channels as well. You've got MSNBC. And then you have the sort of collection of liberal and conservative voices on things like CNN or other cable news channels that don't seem to have uh, an ideological or a partisan bias. On talk radio, the really big voices are the conservatives, right? You yeah. don't have a counterpart, a liberal counterpart to a Rush Limbaugh, do you? I think they, well, over the years, there are various attempts to to create them. I mean, Air America, I think it was, and Shannon remind me of the guys, the, the senator's name who used to write for NBC, uh, Al... Franken? Franken was, was involved in that. Uh, yeah, that's right, Al Franken. But they don't, you know, they're just not as popular. And I guess the coastal elites is the... Uh, you know, as talk radio hosts would would frame people who live on the coast would wouldn't you know didn't pay much attention to to and, liberal radio. And arguably, that's the role that uh, NPR plays in the U.S. is a you know a liberal leaning radio. Although space. they would deny that, obviously. Again, or, right? You know, yeah, they would say that as they would. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I mean, essentially, I think that the, for for the uh, certainly on the coast, like that would be what people would listen to on the radio. Yeah. Um, and when they're looking for sort of news and commentary. Yeah, good point. I guess I, I, when I think of talk radio, I think of like these hosts with larger than life personalities yeah. who have shows that last two or three hours, right? Yeah. I mean, these aren't shows that you just sort of tune into to get little bits and bops of news, left-leaning or right-leaning or otherwise. I yeah. mean, these are hosts who just talk and talk and talk. Yeah, and they rail against, you know, well, the last eight years, they've railed pretty consistently against the Obama administration, against the Obama agenda. They vary in their sort of out there-ness, but they, they've they been pretty consistent. And talk talk stations really blew up in the late 80s. I, I didn't get into this in the story, but it's kind of interesting that Ronald Reagan um, had to renew, I think, a fairness doctrine which, in, which on radio, which meant that if you're a radio station and you had political commentary, you had to give equal time to voices from both sides. And Reagan, the great free marketer, said, that's ridiculous and we don't need that. And there was this mushrooming and explosion after that from the late 80s of talk radio and the emergence of stars like Rush Limbaugh. So your your story is largely about how some of the conservative candidates, primarily Donald Trump, are playing a role on talk radio and then also how the influence of talk radio is playing a role on the way the candidates uh, frame their positions yep. and the way they conduct themselves as they run for office. Talk about that kind of symbiotic relationship and how it's playing out in this election cycle. Well, well there's an interesting thing going on, and I'm going to kind of contradict something I said a minute ago about talk radio being hugely popular. It is talk radio is hugely popular, but in the last ten, uh, well, I guess five or six years, audiences have started to go down, and by around ten million people on average, I think from about sixty. So either 60 to 50 or 50 to 40, I'll have to check the story. And advertising revenues have gone down. As hosts have been more controversial, said more controversial things, advertisers no longer want to be associated with the likes of Rush Limbaugh if he's saying offensive things about particular groups of people. So the kind of cash cow is, is not what it was. Um, and that tracks a broader decline in radio as well. Right. But the, the, the talk radio decline is Super. is greater than the, than the decline in, in music, music stations. So that's created a... An interesting environment, and then along comes Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is ratings gold. Right, wherever he appears, people are tuning in, 
and talk stations have latched onto that. And some of the people I spoke to for the story said that they had jumped on the sort of Trump bandwagon for commercial reasons, maybe without even agreeing with his positions or agreeing with his stance on particular policies, that having him was good for business, but not necessarily good for the Republican Party. So how, when, when you kind of look at the, the Republican Party, which mm. certainly this year seems incredibly fractured, or sort of, you know, the, the, the difference you're seeing essentially between sort of party, the party proper and the base. I mean, how does that, how are we seeing like talk radio, the influence of talk radio play a role versus the role that, that Fox News plays, which often has been seen as more the voice, I think, of the, the establishment. Yeah, well, Fox News is very firmly the, the voice of the establishment right. in this particular election because of the, the clash it had with, with Trump. But the talk radio has kind of become the, the populist voice. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a fight going on within the, the Republican Party between you know, the, the grassroots and the people and the, and the elites and the establishment. And Fox News unwittingly has become framed, at least in this election, as being part of the establishment because of the feud it's got into with, with Trump and Trump's refusal last week to, to take part in the final uh, pre-Iowa debate. Yeah, I mean, I think when a lot of us think of talk radio, we associate it with a measure of ideological or conservative purity. But included in that are what I think a lot of people would consider to be the extreme positions of uh, conservatism in the U.S., right? And so in the case of Trump, who has a kind of a mix of middle-of-the-road economic populist policies in some sense, mm. right, and these more extreme views on immigration, yeah. and I think it's not totally unfair or left-wing of us to say he uses a lot of kind of disturbingly nativist rhetoric yeah. um, uh, throughout this campaign. And so it seems like maybe what's happened is that Fox News was afraid to be tainted by what it didn't yet know was going to happen with Trump, right? It was it was sort of afraid to be tainted by an association with the unknown. Talk radio didn't have those misgivings. I guess I'm kind of curious to know how that split came about. Like, what do you guys think of how these two different genres, these two mediums went about deciding, yes, it's fine to be associated with Trump. No, it's not fine to be associated with well, Trump. Fo this to me is fascinating. Well, he's rate, he's rating gold for Fox too, right? And Fox have been, you know, like the other networks, have been all Trump all the time during this this, this cycle. But when it came down to it, um, the sort of the quirk in the Trump campaign is, you know, he doesn't he the clash with Megyn Kelly, which was pretty well well covered, and Fox stood behind her. Roger Ailes, who runs Fox, uh, stood behind Megyn Kelly. Did not sort of accede to. Trump's demands to have Kelly removed from the debate, the moderating stage, and took a took a stance again, you know, for Fox journalism, and said we're going to be, you know, we, we're not going to have be bossed around by you. We're going to, you know, but then he took it a, a step too far, playing into the drama, which was more ratings gold by kind of getting into a fight with him and saying that, you know, mocking Trump with a statement last week and saying, oh, you know, I bet he, you know, he's too scared to take part. Um, I wonder how that would go down when dealing with Vladimir Putin or the Ayatollah or, you know, which which made for great drama and great spectacle. And then there was this kind of back and forth for 48 hours. Like, would he appear or wouldn't he appear? Yeah, he didn't like it very much. No, he didn't like it, but it was great for Fox ratings. The Fox, the, the ratings for the final debate were pretty good. I mean, I think this is, it's it's all sort of another example of really how unlike any other political candidate Donald Trump is, because, mm. you know, essentially, I mean, even, even other candidates who maybe, you know, would criticize Fox for not, embracing some of the, the farther out there populist rhetoric 
I mean, in some degree, they're reliant, right? They're reliant on being able to appear on Fox News and getting that attention. I mean, it, it feels like it's almost completely reversed with Trump, right? Mm-hmm. The, the media feels much more reliant on Trump than Trump is on the media right. because, I mean, he is a star of, in his own right. He has, you know, he can kind of go anywhere. You know, he can decide one day to be on Fox and not be on the next day and he's not going to suffer for it in yeah. the way that a more traditional candidate, uh, I think, would have a much harder time. But there's a paradox, right? The paradox is Trump is great for ratings. Get him on on air. He's terrific. The more he's on air, the less uh, more moderate candidates, more establishment candidates get to appear. The worse you know, the worse that is for their campaigns. If you're a Republican in the media and you work at a talk station, or you're Roger Ailes, who was a, a, a you know very much a Republican, would love to see a Republican in the White House. You want to trade? There's a trade off because what's good for business isn't necessarily good for the party. In fact, it's bad for the party because Trump is you know if Trump's still the the lead candidate nationwide, he's polled very badly um, among non-Republican voters, or among all voters. So in a national poll, in a general election, he wouldn't win currently against a Bernie Sanders or a Hillary Clinton. Yeah, there's, I guess, a kind of perennial tension for both talk radio and for Fox News about deciding how much Trump is the appropriate amount of Trump, right? Yeah. So on the one hand... We traditionally don't hold it against a candidate when he or she happens to be particularly charismatic or has great presence. That's just a part of what it means to be a good candidate and in some senses a good politician. At the same time, when a lot of the airtime is coming specifically because that candidate is known for saying outrageous things, Mm -hmm. right, then you might have a little bit more of a conundrum, Mm -hmm. right? So this is sort of, to me, an area where journalism overlaps with and often has a clash with media more generally, right? Uh, And I don't think it's really easy to resolve that tension. I don't know that it can be. I think it's maybe something we just have to live with. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, an interesting point um, actually came up in the uh, the New York Times uh, did their primary endorsements last weekend ahead of Iowa. Um, so they endorsed Hillary Clinton, and on the Republican side, they endorsed Kasich, which is a, probably a death knell for the rest yeah. of his campaign. But one of the points they made about Trump was that when he came in to meet with the editorial board, he basically says, like, you know, I'm really good at reading a crowd, and you know, if I feel like I need to amp them up, then I just kind of sort of say something, mm. you know. And they and and the editors of the New York Times took that as like, you know, saying, you know, framed it as this is somebody who's sort of dangerous and is just going to go out there and say whatever it is to get attention. You know, and so I think you, you're seeing this like big divide, you know, within within the the media and the way in terms of how to approach the coverage and how to, you know, what how and when to call him out, mm. and you know what is and, and we see this in general. You know, the, what is the role of the media as a fact checker? And somebody like Trump really, really, you know, pushes those buttons. And you know, for for an organization like Fox or any conservative media hosts, you know, how far can you push? Before well, I, I think that's the bigger point that, the, that conservative media as a business, it has its own struggles. And we talked about talk radio ratings going down. Conservative media is aimed at the base of the Republican Party. Right? There, aren't, there doesn't really have any liberal listeners or liberal Fox. Fox is a very small proportion of liberal viewers. But you can say, you can make a case for saying that conservative media is bad for the Republican Party because it amplifies these populist voices like Trump and these these heart you know these extreme positions, which are great theater and great television and great radio, but alienating for the people you need to win an election, yeah. um, and that's the kind of that's the crunch the crunch of what I was I was trying to get at in the story. And someone actually told me, and I can't name them because they didn't want to go on the record, but you know, 
he said that a lot of these talk stations they don't agree with Trump. They get him on on air, but it's good business, and he, he doesn't think that they care about not being a Republican Party not being in power because it's better for them business-wise, to be part of the bitter opposition, as he, as he called it. Well, this is all fascinating. We're going to put a link to Matt's article uh, in the show notes on Alphaville. But Matt, before we let you go, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? My long-form recommendation, it's a bit of a leap from what we've just been talking about. But my favorite podcast, and I've been religious, religiously listening to... Other than this one? Other than this one, obviously, is... Um, Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode's film review show, which is a BBC radio podcast. It's like, it's a two to three hour weekly look at movies and interviews and the rest. But it's really two old guys arguing. And, and they call it wittertainment because they witter and bicker. And it's highly amusing. And I recommend it to everybody. Excellent. Your, your own version of talk radio. It's basically me and talk radio. Yeah. <laughs> Matt Garahan, Global Media Editor for the FT. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. And after a week off, Amelia Mahasek is back for the follow-up segment. Amelia, what did you think of last week's episode? I thought it was long for a short-term discussion. <laughs> <laughs> you had, uh, what was, what's he, I've forgotten his name now, Mark Mobison? Michael, Michael Mobison. Mobison. Yes. Uh, my apologies Yes, to that's Michael. okay. Uh, the episode did run about an hour long. That is longer than our usual Alpha Chat episode. No, I was just struck by the um, contradiction in Mr. Short-Term's uh, long <laughs> answers. But anyway, right. no, it was really interesting. I'm, I'm a long-term kind of girl so I did find all of his thoughts quite challenging I just to be let's let's define this we're talking about the conversation with Michael Mobison is about the trend towards short-termism in the actions taken by companies and investors you when you say that you're a long-term kind of person you're saying you find this to be somewhat disturbing uh, and you wish they'd move away from it Um, Michael offered some ideas for why uh, this was happening, and it wasn't necessarily due to short-termism, but rather some structural and cyclical changes in the economy. And you're saying you're not sure you agree with him. He was the bit I don't agree with is that he was suggesting that there's nothing wrong with short-termism, that maybe there are some benefits to it. And as someone we've we at the FT have been having a pensions discussion internally, and so as someone who's interested in long-term pensions, I think you know, a long-term approach is to be encouraged rather than a short-term approach. You know, you want to know that obviously capital growth is important, but you want some capital preservation also if you're going to be waiting to a 60-65 over a 40-year time period. So, and it seems to me that a lot of people in investment management have uh, very much shorter time frames. They're only in the industry for five or 10 years. You know, you're lucky if you find someone who's been in it for several decades and seen several cycles. You know, we've almost had a single cycle for such a long time now that I find a sort of, you know, the optimistic view that there is some benefits to short-termism interesting, but in an overarching way, I prefer someone with a long-term view who was going to look after my money. The other thing that struck me in the discussion was uh, that it generally seems we're talking about companies with a lot of cash piles that they don't quite know what to do with it. So they engage in short-term share market, uh, share price, sorry, boosting activity like buybacks or 
increase, maintaining dividends by borrowing money, which also seems bonkers to me. But I wonder about the lack of imagination in our corporate world about what to do with cash. Sure. One, one, well, here's where I might push back a bit, right? It's one thing to cite a lack of imagination. It's quite another thing to see a company be imaginatively wasteful, right? Because you course. wouldn't like it if a company decided to spend its excess cash on really kind of boneheaded investments or on things that are outright plutocratic, like I think I mentioned last week, a suite of corporate planes for its executives, of right? Course. I mean, that's the kind of investment but I don't think any of us There's a would long get way between, no, of course, and that's just bad management and all around bad management, not even a failure of imagination. But it, there's a long way between that, buying corporate jets and actually thinking strategically about your business and what would improve it beyond just buying the next business that happens to be alongside or, you know, making the the corporate suite more comfortable. And I wonder whether that some of that comes back to that you have companies where a chief executive himself or herself really is there for three years or five years at the most. You know, you, you struggle to see chief executives who've been in the job for a decade. So... Perhaps there's, uh, which of course also has some of its issues when management gets entrenched, but perhaps there's something in that there is no long-term thinking inside the company, so there is no incentive for them to think beyond their stock option package or even to be more thoughtful about what's good for their employees in a decade or what sort of you know contribution are they making to the world. There's none of that kind of thought that goes into the spending of the capital, it seems to me. And so then, in fact, they become in a circular way victims of shareholder activism you know it you just become your own worst enemy it seems yeah to me. that is definitely one of the salient points one of the reasons i really enjoyed having michael on here though is because he lays out a lot of the nuances that i think are often missed in discussions of short-termism one of which is that you can't ignore the circumstances the wider macroeconomic circumstances mm. in which it takes place if you have a perpetually struggling economy one that's stuck in one of these kind of stagnationary, stagnationist themes that we often discuss here, then it becomes a problem of executives thinking, well, God, if I invest in a new factory, if I hire more people, and it turns out that nobody wants to buy our stuff because the economy is so weak, I'm going to look like an idiot and I'm going to get fired. Now, within that context, there are still things they can do that are better ideas than borrowing money to boost share buybacks. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But at the same time, I think it's impossible to ignore the context. And yet it very often is ignored uh, in kind of pundit stories or commentary that you find in the media. I think it's really important to bring that into the conversation. I thought he did that pretty well. Yeah, indeed. I, I agree totally. Amelia, before we let you go, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? My long-form choices were completely blown out of the water by Jessica Jones, which you guys both recommended <laughs> <laughs> off air. And I feel like I've spent all of my 13 hours of spare time in the last two weeks watching. You binged it. I binge-watched Jessica Jones. She's great, but as uh, Shannon has said, she makes bad choices. <laughs> I've, I haven't actually, I have to admit, I haven't actually finished it. I'm only a couple episodes from the end, but I've gotten really impatient with her, her lack of planning ability. So we should explain it's the Marvel cartoons based, but not cartoon like right, series, on, which on is Netflix. full of uh, strong women, actually. That's quite definitely an interesting thing about it, even though they make bad choices. <laughs> Uh, Amelia Mahasek, <laughs> always a pleasure, and we will see you back here next week. Thank you, Carter and Shannon. Shannon, before we close it out, 
we have not yet given our own long-form recommendations. What is yours? I'm recommending a column by our colleague, Sarah O'Connor, who's over in London. It is called Equal Pay for Millennials is a Boost for Equal Parenting. And she basically um, makes the argument uh, looking at some of the gender pay gap data, including Claudia Golden's research, which we've talked about here before, saying that for younger workers, you are starting to see that gap narrow, which is good news for a lot of reasons. But she's then saying because of that, this should be a spur to companies to rethink their parental leave policies. And you know, as we're seeing, particularly with younger families, people wanting to you know, distribute sort of childcare and sort of family life responsibilities more equally between partners in the relationship, uh, our, our workplace policies should reflect this. So it's a good read. I recommend it. Sounds great. What about you? My recommendation is Little Rice, Smartphones, Xiaomi, and the Chinese Dream. It's by Clay Shirky. It's a story of Xiaomi. By some accounts, the most successful startup ever. It's a Chinese company that makes smartphones, and yet I'd never even heard of it until I read Clay's book. It's a fascinating book and one that says a lot about where China's headed in the next five or ten years. Sounds great. Shannon, I forgot how to close out a show, so I'm just going to leave it to you from now on. All right, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'd love to hear what you thought of the show and send us your questions and comments. Uh, you can give us a call at 917-551-5012 or send an email to alphachat at ft.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. China might be on the rise, but we don't have to worry about North American competitiveness so long as the Canadian Amy Keene is based right here in New York. And the reign of conservative talk radio, on the other hand, should be worried because once her ascent begins, it's over for everybody else. Thanks so much for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.